I want to make it abundantly clear. I choose Jesus. I don't care what y'all come up with. I don't care how y'all work it out. I'm choosing Jesus. It's the one man I know I can trust. 100% of the time. I stand before you this morning a little nervous. I'm a little nervous because I know I have a lot of things I want to say. I don't have a lot of time. Take your time. Yes, but our brothers are not going to let me take my time. (laughs) And I find myself in this really interesting space of carrying the weight of being the woman who stands before you to share a message from the Lord on this particular Sabbath. Some of you know me. Some of you have heard of me. Everything is probably true. And so I want to start by apologizing up front and tell you that I do not intend to hurt your feelings, but I will. Amen. That what I have to say is not a reflection on the McVeighs, who I absolutely love and adore. Amen. I will blame him a little bit because in 2002, he told me that I should become a pioneering cross-cultural evangelist and I have been trying my best. And he was the first person to call me a change agent pastor. Amen. So he's kind of partly to blame. (laughs) But he and his beautiful wife, Pam, loved on me. And um, I want you to know that little baby that we prayed over when we had that baby shower just turned 14 in December. (laughs) And he's taller than me. And so often when he comes into the kitchen, I jump because his father is the only person in the house who's supposed to be taller than me. And he's only 14. Pray for my soul. I do not remember the name of my friend up in the mics, but you let me know if we need to switch. I'm, I'm going to try to stay here. And it sounds a little tinny, but we're going to work with that. I want to thank Dr. Pedrita Maynard-Reed and the rest of the team who put together this weekend's celebration. I want to thank um, my hosts, um, your chaplain, Albert. I want to thank Adrian. I want to thank Pastor Alaris Colley. I want to thank Pastor Andreas Bakai for the opportunity to stand in this pulpit before you this morning. And I want to thank you for showing up because I know you have options. Not as many options as I have in Loma Linda. But you have options. And I believe I've thanked almost everyone. I also want to thank um, Dr. Young and the team behind me in the choir for the way that they set the plate for us this morning to feast on the Word of God. Um, This is the first time that that Benji and I have actually ministered together, but I know of Benji. And um, it's just a thrill to to be able to do this. And what's funny, I was asked what songs I wanted and I had none, and you just sang my favorite songs ever. Um, And so I'm just like, y'all thought it was for (laughs) y'all. Jesus did that for me to let me know that I'm, I'm gonna do what it is that he wants me to do. So I want you to turn to your Bibles. Does this count down, ma'am? 
No, ma'am. Yeah. Don't worry about it. No, yeah, just so I can, you know. Don't worry about it. I hear you say that, sir. I hear you say that, sir. But I know who I'm in front of. So you should know by now I speak the truth. Cost it what it will. Hey, friend. It's good to see you. I forgot you were up here. Good to see you. So this morning, I want to turn in your Bibles or whatever you read your Bibles on, slide your fingers over in that Bible app to the book of Luke, Luke, and we're going to be at chapter five. I'm at that stage of my life where I need reading glasses. These aren't fly. I'm working my way. Judge me. I'm old. I'm a middle-aged woman. And I love every moment of it. When you found Luke chapter five, please say amen. And I want to bring your attention to this very short passage of scripture, um, Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. I know there are theologians in the house, so let me tell you up front, I'm not going to do an exegetical study this morning. But we're going to do some work with this text. I find myself in this really interesting space and time. I find myself negotiating, navigating, having conversations about story. And as I was preparing for this morning's talk, I found myself in this space trying to decide, would I preach or would I teach? And I decided, Elder, I'm going to teach today. So I need you to have your books, your pens, whatever you write on, because I'm going to talk. I'm going to try not to talk too fast, but you're going to have to do some reading on your own. And I will be happy to give you my email address at the end so that if there's anything I say that you really want to have a conversation about, I want us to have dialogue. Okay? So, Luke 5, verses 33 to 39. And in my church, where my husband is my pastor, when we read the word, he says, please stand. So, please stand. And we're going to just stretch because you've been sitting for quite a while. And it reads like this. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you you cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come. And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wineskin into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for, he says, the old is good enough. I want to spend some time this morning talking under the subject, when good enough isn't good enough anymore. When good enough isn't good enough anymore. Father, your sons and daughters have hastened to your throne. The reason we're here is because we love Jesus. God, we may disagree about a whole lot of other things, but this is the one thing we agree that we love Jesus. We also agree that Sabbath is important. We also agree that we are looking forward to your second coming. So those three things ought to be enough 
Lord God, for us to have a dialogue from Scripture this morning and to hear a word from you. And so I ask for you to speak, Lord. Speak. Take our ears and tune them to the frequency of your spirit. Challenge our hearts and our minds, Lord God, so that when we leave worship today, good enough will no longer be enough. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Everybody loves a good story. The elements of stories, beginning, middle, end, a plot, protagonist, hero type, the setting matters. Everybody loves a good story. You know how I know we love good stories? Because we show up in movie theaters whenever the stories are released. Or we watch them at home. We watch them on television. We buy books and we read. We read fiction, we read nonfiction. We all love story. We were made for story. Our story, the human story from the Judeo-Christocentric perspective begins with in the beginning. So we are predisposed to story. And if I were to say to you that story matters, Almost all of you would say, absolutely, that makes sense to me, though. Let's say, yeah, story matters. Story matters. Because it is story that brings us into this room this morning. It is story that brings you from all over the planet to Walla Walla. I remember the first time I heard the name Walla Walla. It was circa 1990. And I was like, what is a Walla Walla? And the the graduate of this institution said, it's a place that's so nice, they named it twice. And it, 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 well, you know that sounds cheesy, right? I'm being facetious. That's the first time I heard of Walla Walla. I just was like, it's very far. They were like, yeah, but that's where I'm going for college because of the program that Walla Walla had to offer. So that was my first time hearing about Walla Walla. And in order for me to give you context of Walla Walla in my life, I need to tell you my story. So can I tell you my story? So I locate myself as an Afro-Caribbean American woman. Let me me add more to it. I'm cisgendered, which means that my gender and my sex identify. I am married. I'm heteronormative. I have two children, as you heard, and a dog, and one husband of 23 years. We've been friends for 33. I identify as a Christian, Seventh-day Adventist, intentionally in that order, because I'm allegiance, I'm Jesus all day. I was born and raised in a Christian home. I grew up on an island in the Caribbean. I lived in a single-parent home past the age of nine. The only places I was allowed to go was church, school, and the library. My mother did not play. I didn't like her most of my adult years. I love her now. Because I am the product of her commitment to church, school, and the library. When I was halfway through, and when I was in high school, and I started high school, I was 10 years old. And um, 
when I was about 11 or 12, one of my friends, she was an Adventist young woman who happened to be attending the Catholic high school that I was attending. And I don't know why she asked me this question, but she said, hey, what do you think you need to be saved? And I was like, keep the commandments of God. And she said, perfect, you're doing all of them except one. It was that quick. It was like a quick conversation. She was doing her good Adventist duty. And I said, which one? And so we, I started, and she said, let me save you, the Sabbath. And I was like, what about? She said, go ask your priest. So that Saturday afternoon, I went to choir rehearsal. I went to my priest, and I said, Father, could you please tell me a little bit about this Sabbath thing? And he dismissed me and told me to go to choir rehearsal. And so at 12, I realized I was a feminist. That's not the word that I called myself. But in that moment, he created a feminist. Because, you know, a feminist is simply a person, male or female, who thinks that women are people. I'm going to let y'all hold that. (laughs) Women are people too. We have feelings, right? So he created a feminist and he didn't even know it. So he dismissed me because I was only 12. And at 12, why was I having any kind of theological dialogue? Because he forgot that Jesus did that. But that's a whole other conversation. And so I remember going faithfully to choir rehearsal, and back then I was in an Anglican church, which meant we had high church every single Sunday. We had the fancy pipe organ, right? We sang everything in the key of C high. <laughs> right? We, we, it was beautiful. Like, it was a beautiful worship experience for me growing up as a child. I went to my choir director after choir rehearsal. We were standing in downtown Kingston. I remember it like it was yesterday, and we were looking at all the people shopping and going back and forth. And I said to him, which day is Sabbath? He said, Saturday. I said, why are we here? And he said, well, you know, Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. And, and I said, I'm not going to stay in this church. I can't. I said, when I get older, I'm going to be Baptist or Adventist. I declared it. That was a thing I was going to do. Didn't talk to my mother about it because, you know, I was underage. (laughs) I I, I wasn't self-supporting or self-sufficient, but I knew in that moment that my life as I thought it would go would change. Fast forward a number of years through lots of circumstances. I find myself um, in the United States and my mom's closest friend is a Seventh-day Adventist African man. And I go to church with him, uh, with his kids a couple of times. And they invite me to go to choir rehearsal and I go to choir rehearsal and I come back joining the choir, not being Adventist, but wanting to join the choir. And my mom was like, I don't know what you're doing. I'm like, I don't know either, but I'm here. And they told me that I could. And within a few weeks, they had a crusade. And I gave my heart again to Jesus for the 150th time. And the rest is history. Praise the Lord. And so I became one of you. And the reason that story is important is because of my location, I get to have multiple conversations with people in this room at the same time. When Jesus has this conversation with the disciples of John and the Pharisees, it is because Jesus also finds himself like I do this morning, butting up against the way things have always been. And while I'm not going to spend time having a conversation about the fasting and the bridegroom, etc., I really want to focus on the parable. Because the parable Jesus tells is 
that no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. God wants to make new wine. When Jesus came, he came to make new wine. I know y'all don't drink. Amen. So let's have that conversation. In the, in the history of Adventism in this world, we have four generations trying to coexist at the same time. They're the boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials and them, and the Gen Zers who are just beginning college. For the first time in Earth's history, these four generations who have different stories are in the same place trying to coexist. And it's problematic. Because the stories we tell ourselves shape the way we interact with each other. That's why I wanted you to tell you my story. So when I came as an Afro-Caribbean American woman to the United States, I learned very quickly not to tell anybody I was, I was Afro-Caribbean because the white people in New York treated me differently because I was Afro-Caribbean than my African-American brothers and sisters. Now, you didn't know, I'm just here to let you know, right? Because that's what happens. And why do they treat us differently? Because the story that was told was that African Americans were lazy, uneducable, only wanted to live off of welfare. I'm telling all the, I shouldn't tell nobody the truth. Right? Up to no good. But you see the African Caribbean people, man, they're so nice. They're hard work, can you see? I go to their country, they're so nice, they treat me so nicely. My teacher, I will not say his name just in case he's still alive, but I remember him standing in front of my class and he said, I love Jamaica. And then he would go, why are you here for class? You don't have to stay. I was like, whoa, what just happened? He was like, Dillis, I know you know this work, you can go. I was like, whoa, you're trying to get somebody jump me at the bus stop. Because he was privileging my being Afro-Caribbean above my African-American classmates. That was the last time anybody knew I was Uh Afro-Caribbean. Because I did not want anyone to privilege me because I was dropped off in the Caribbean and not in the United States. As time moved on, I discovered a few other things. I'm coming for everybody today. (laughs) I discovered a few other things. I discovered that continental Africans had also been taught that fallacy that every African-American was lazy, up to no good, wanted to be on welfare. Now, you know this is the stories we're told, right? And where are these stories told, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. The media. And the silence. And the omission. Because I used to teach middle school. So when I'm teaching eighth grade history, American history, and the story of black people begins with slavery 
in America, then that means that black people in America have no story. And we don't tell the truth about how they ended up here in the first place. And you understand that when you do this generation after generation after generation after generation, then it builds a story that is incomplete. So then my African friends, when I would say, hey, are you African-American? No. My sister, no. I am from Africa. And I go, uh, but you're black. <laughs> and when you're in these United States of America, before you open your mouth, That's right. you're black. You're black. That's right. And there's a way that people believe we are. No matter how much you exceptionalize yourself, and how much you excel. And remember living color? How many jobs you up? I have 10 jobs. Y'all nobody living color? I'm the only living. Live, you with me? In living color, the running joke about Africans and African Caribbean people was that we would, we would do every single job possible. So there it continued that story of difference. So being an Afro-Caribbean woman who comes into the Adventist church finds herself in a black Adventist church in New York City. I remember one of the members of the Anglican church said to me, how are you joining a church that's racially divided? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I didn't. I was like, I'm just really convicted about Sabbath. I'm really convicted about the second coming of Jesus Christ and I really want to talk about that. He was like, yeah, that's cool, but you understand that your church has some racial problems. And I was like, no, no, no. I, no. <sighs> and my mother had said to me, you go and join them Adventist people here. You think they're perfect. And you think they, I can move, right? Ish, ish, because you know, I'm a little bright, but I, I got you. See, I'm working with you. I was trying to come closer, but after, you know, the confines of broadcast and everything. So, um, where was I? Yeah, I didn't know. And my mother had said to me, you go and join those Adventist people because you believe they have all the truth and you think everything is perfect, but Dillis, they are not perfect. So here was the problem, my friends. The problem was when I discovered that we weren't perfect, I couldn't tell her. <laughs> you, you understand how that'd be problematic, right? So my prayer was, Jesus, help me figure this out. Help me navigate this. And Jesus answers all prayers. The desperate ones, the ones you don't even remember you said, the ones you thought and did not utter, he answers. And so circa 1998-99, I was at AUC when it was still open. I was doing my coursework for my teaching credentials, and I was taking a phys ed class. I don't like Massachusetts particularly. I'm sorry if you're from Massachusetts. I apologize. It's not my favorite place. New, New England's not my favorite place in, in the country. But we were in Massachusetts. We were in class. We were all sitting down. One of my girlfriends from New York was with me. And the teacher, we introduced ourselves. And second day of class, this young white woman says, hi, my name is Jean. And I go, hi. I'm very New York. I'm like, I don't know you. You say hi to me for it. <laughs> Any New Yorkers here? Don't leave me out here by myself. Aren't we disrespectful? They're <laughs> like, okay. That's it. We're done. We're done. <laughs> Try to be a friend. So she was like, hi. And I was like, why is she being nice to me? 
I'm like, I don't know her. So I was like, hi, and I was done. Because my friend quota was full. Like I was done with making new friends, right? Judge me, I'm fine. <laughs> so the next day we go to class, she goes, we have a mutual friend. And I was like, I know how many white people I know. And they're, you're not one of them. And she said, we have a mutual friend. I'm like, who could we possibly have as a mutual friend? And she goes, Adrian. And I went, (laughs) because if you know my friend, Adrian Townsend Benton, she's a chaplain in the US Navy. She's one of the nicest human beings on the planet. I want to be like her when I grow up. And so the problem was that when she said Adrian was her friend, I knew in that moment that I could act stank or be nice. Because how I behaved would reflect on Adrian. Hi. So we go to the gym, and you know in these gym classes you have to press and lift and all that stuff, and I'm standing there, because I'm so sorry my back is turning, y'all. So I'm standing there, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be friendly, y'all. You know how that is? You're like, I'm not, just, just get this over with. And she goes, who are the Lyndon Ayers? I'm like, what? She's like, who are the Lyndon Ayers? And she points to my t-shirt. I'm the one walking around with my choir shirt on. And so we engage in a conversation. I said, oh, it's a choir from my church. She said, oh, I sing too. You do? There's another story I was telling myself was that she didn't sing. Judge me. So she said, yeah, 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 I sing with Haitian mass. I said, you're that girl. And she said, oh, okay. She was the only white woman on a Haitian choir, predominantly Haitian choir, about 300 voices. New York State Instant Nominational Haitian Mass Choir. And she was, Sally Fepamwam, see Sally Fepamwam. And I remember going, who's the white girl? And I kept thinking, but who is the white girl? Like, does anybody know where she's from? John P. Key, anybody know John P. Key? You remember John P. Key back in the day had that one white woman in his choir from the South? Y'all, I'm going to bring y'all together. It's going to make sense. So I'm looking at her and I'm going, you're that woman? She said, yes. I said, how? (laughs) Of all the things you could do, how did you end up here? She said, well, I read my way into Adventism because of a relationship that she had been in. She went to the white churches in upstate New York and it was just empty and she just didn't feel comfortable. She, and she was teaching in the Bronx, so she worked for church school. She said she didn't know that our churches were divided by black and white. So she looked at the church in the book, in the phone book, and she showed up for church that Sabbath morning, and there was this rather um, warm, soft African-American woman who greeted her at the door with a big old bear hug, and she said, home, I found home. So she said, I love when black people come to church on Sabbath and I'm the greeter. She says, because they don't know what to do, because they're like, I know I'm in a black church, but why is this white woman here? <laughs> that summer, Jean Marie and I spent a lot of time having really hard conversations. We had hard conversations about race and about racism. And for the first time, I heard her say to me, I love black church, except February. And you know, immediately, all the black people in the room, you know, immediately I was ready to throw down. (laughs) I was like, what's wrong with, why why you don't like February? And she said, 
I didn't own any slaves, and no one in my family owned slaves. And I had to pause, y'all. I had to pause in that moment because her story mattered. Her story mattered. And I had to sit in that space and go, what would it feel like for me if I was in her position? And that began my continued interrogation and critique of what it is that we do. Jean Marie loves the fact that I tell this story. So I tell the story with her permission. A few years later, I went to seminary and her comment was, I can't wait for you to go to Andrews because I don't know what you're gonna do with all those white people. (laughs) She said, how are you gonna survive? Now, some of you in this room might be going, is Dillis racist? No, naturally not. Because racism, in order for it to exist, I would actually have the power, I would actually have some kind of power to to, to get that system, because racism is a system, right? It's a system, and it's a very nebulous system. It's a system that adapts and readapts itself every single generation. And the problem is because we don't talk about the story of racism. We don't talk about our experiences with racism. Then it continues to just dip and dodge, because the story is told that millennials don't have problems with race. It's a lie. It just sounds different. It just looks different. So I went to Andrews, and your president preached a sermon about being a pioneering cross-cultural evangelist, and the Holy Spirit shot me and was like, get it together. And then I began this journey of what does it look like for all of us to know that we are the children of God, which brings me to the text for today. Because Walla Walla, just as when Jesus walked the face of the earth, and he came bearing good news to people to say God wants to do a new thing. He found himself butting heads with the people who wanted to do the old thing because the old thing was good. And because it was good, there was no reason for them to change it. Why are we messing it up? Everybody knows their place. Everybody understands where they belong. We're not lynching anybody today, are we? Right? You can live anywhere you want to go. You can go any school you want to go to. Nobody is telling you that you can't be or do. But the truth of the matter is, yes. It's still happening. So like Jesus this morning, I come before you and I say, we got to make new wine. We got to make new wine. Last night, I looked up the statistics for Washington State to check on the prison system in your state. And it was just too much. And I was, I was triggered. <laughs> I was like, I can't. But I'll tell you the one statistic I will share with you. Anybody here born in 2001? If you were born in 2001, raise your hand. But, but come on now. I could be giving you a blessing. Okay, you can put your hands down. This was a statistic I saw last night. It said if you're a black man born in 2001, one out of three of you will be, will be, will be imprisoned. One out of three. And I know you're gonna tell me that I'm being political on a Sabbath morning. But when I read the scriptures, Jesus was political all the time. 
because Jesus kept saying, this is not okay. Jesus kept saying to the church people, the people who were the curators of the word of God, he said, this is not okay. We have to change it. And friends, we have to change it not when it happens to our kids. We have to change it because it happens to anybody's child. Because the same scriptures say that all of us are made in the image and likeness of God. I don't stand before you this morning judge and jury. Because my journey is a continuous work of understanding about myself, about my own complicity in things. Do you know that when I get up to preach now, I have to own the fact that Christianity has been used to harm Muslim people? And because I work in a space where we have Muslims, that when I'm going to speak to a Muslim community, if I don't name the fact that I have been complicit, even though I personally didn't do it, I wasn't there with the flag going as a crusade. I wasn't there, but I'm a beneficiary. I belong to the people. So when I say Christian, it creates a problem. And that is part of the problem that we're having when we talk about the issue of what it means to be a person of color, specifically a black person in the United States. So here's where we're going to have problems. What does new wine look like? New wine means black history is not a once a month thing, once a year thing. Because for me, it's every day. I don't get a day off. And I want to challenge anyone in this room who is planning to be an educator. I want you to start thinking about how do you change curriculum so that age appropriately we can talk about the issues that have plagued this country. We came and took this country. Notice I said we, because I am an American. That's what my green card, not my green card, what the thing called? The passport. And I only have one. Now I could go back to Jamaica, because some days I'll be like, this is too much work, Jesus. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth, because what I'm talking about is hard. But I return my taxes, pay them every year. So I, as an American, I am saying to you that you and I together have to dialogue about how do we change things so that we are not dealing with shame. Because the issue of confronting the sordid past of America is the shame it stirs up inside of us. Because as Jean said, Dillis, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, nobody in my family did do it. Now Jean Marie is half Irish, half Italian. And then when I look at my history, the Irish and the Italians weren't treated nicely either. So what happens when we start telling the stories and we start listening to the stories? We create new wine. So I don't drink wine. I drink kombucha. Come for me. It's good for the stomach. <laughs> I'm just probiotics, right? Isn't that a story we're telling ourselves? <laughs> but I learned some things about winemaking. 
Did you know that when they're gonna make wine from grapes, and when we were in Michigan, we used to see all the, the grapevines and we would see them cut them back and when they would flourish and, and stuff. But did you know that in the making of wine, they take the entire thing. So they pick it off the vine, stalk, or stem, stem, yeah? Stem, grapes, skin. They take all of that and that's what they press. Now, in the ancient Near East, you know how they made wine, right? What, what, what we would we do? It would stop, 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 hey, right? It was a party. It was actually a celebration when it was time for the first wine to be pressed. So what they would do is, of course, they wash their feet, y'all. And the women would come, pull up their robes, and they would stomp on top of, what did I say? Stem, seeds, grapes, skin and all. And they would stomp on that, and that was called mush. What was that called? Now here's the thing about the mush. Everything pushed up together, no differentiation. If it was left by itself, within four or five days, that thing would start to ferment. Because there was some yeast on the skin of the grapes. So what got me excited about this news was that there was no differentiation between the stem, the stalk, the seeds, the skin. All of it was thrown together, pressed on to produce something new. Oh, I wish y'all were with me. The only differentiation that was made was whether or not the grapes themselves were moldy ahead of time. So they were inspected and picked out and they put them all together. They stomped on them, they mushed them. This room is America. All of us. Because the only people who were here originally were the native people. But every single one of us are immigrants. No matter what generation you think you are. And we are America. Now here's the problem. If the story we tell that America is only by those who colonized it or those who took it over, then you understand we're going to continue to have problems. But if we are able to say we did do that, not me personally, but people that look like me did that. And you know what? I don't like the way it makes me feel when you bring that up to me. And I may respond negatively to you, but could you give me a little grace? And for those of us who know what colonization and post-colonization looks like, for those of us who experience and continue to experience what marginalization looks like, if we are willing to tell our stories to each other, and to those who we feel are oppressive to us. And I don't know what y'all gonna say, tell us why we gotta be the ones to teach. Because only we can tell our story. Nobody else can tell our story for us. If we don't tell the story, then we become complicit in the continuation of the pain. So I'm crazy enough to believe y'all because of Jesus. I'm crazy enough to believe that the mush of your life and the mush of my life, when it's pressed down by Jesus, will make new wine. 
it's going to make something new. But here is the problem. What kind of skin are we going to put it in? Because for every boomer in this room, every boomer in this room is like, is this going to get in the way of Jesus coming though? Do we really have time to sit here talking about this stuff? Why do we have to bring this up, Dillis? I mean, I personally didn't do anything to anybody. And the Gen Xers in the room, like me, are like, can we just blow the whole thing up? <laughs> I'm the only Xer in the room. Any extras are going to side with me when I say we're all about let's just blow this whole thing up and start from scratch? Anybody? Any? I see you. Thank you. I appreciate you not leaving me out here. Because the extras were like, we know it doesn't work. Let's get rid of it. Come on. And then we have the millennials who are like, oh my gosh. Do you see how much drama y'all caused? Like, I need a minute. I need to work this out. You want me to do what? Uh, no. You couldn't possibly want me to fix your mess. Like, I need to go on Facebook and see what's happening. I'm a, can I thumbs it up? Oh, I'm coming for you. And the Gen Zers are like, um, let me check my schedule. <laughs> let me just see how this works. Oh, I know the information. I can tell you how to fix it. And interestingly enough, the research is telling us that Gen Zers connect with boomers in a really powerful way. So it seems to me, if we would just start telling and listening to stories, we can make some new wine. Yeah. That we don't have to keep doing what we're doing. That we can do something different. Because what we have isn't good enough. It isn't good enough. Now I have skin in the game. Because Dr. McVeigh and his wife can tell you that I prayed and cried for God to, be, to give me a son. And he did. And I told you he's 14. His father got pulled over on Wednesday in our neighborhood. Because they said his tags were not up to date. I know for a fact the tags were up to date because he had just put the new tag on the car the day before. And so when the officer pulled him over and said, and my husband said, and you know, part of me is like, don't ask any questions, just shut your mouth. Because I need you to come home. Y'all don't understand me. I'm telling you my story. And my story matters because it's mine. And I don't need you to tell me I misunderstand it. Because I'm the one that's living it. And I live with the reality that my 14-year-old will be 16 in two years and he's going to be driving. And I'm going to have to tell him, when you're driving, you are going to get pulled over by the police. And the policeman wants to go home to his family too. And while the policeman doesn't know anything about you and he doesn't hate you, you personally, he has been socialized and been taught by society that you are up to no good. Even if you speak properly, and classical music is playing in the car, because my girlfriend used to do that when we were in New York. If the cops pulled us over, by the time the cop came to the car, classical music was playing, and she was just sitting there with her hands at 10 and 2. Yes, officer? Because she was taught. How many of my white friends have to do that with your kids? You don't. Doesn't mean you're bad people. It just means our reality is different. And I told, I know this is on broadcast, but I told my sons, tell all your friends, that if they're in the car with you and they have illegal substances and you get pulled over, I'm coming for them and their parents. 
So you better tell your friends. My poor son was like, okay, mom. Because <laughs> I will be that mother. New wine. Jesus wants to make new wine. But the wine can't be made if we stick to the old wine. And if we think it's good enough. If we keep thinking that we can take this new wine and put it into old wine skins, it's not going to work. But can I tell you the good news? The good news is that Jesus is capable of making all of us into new wineskins. Hallelujah, somebody. That our generations and our history do not determine what God can do. So my challenge for you, Walla Walla, as I go back to my hometown, as you try to figure out how to begin to have these conversations where people are uncomfortable, where we name racism, where we name oppression, where we name epistemic oppression, where we name all these things that happen amongst us. And it's not comfortable that we become patient with the process. Because it's going to take time. Because new wine eventually becomes old. So, as we wrap up our worship today, Here's my challenge for you. If you don't know anything about what I talked about today, ask someone that looks like me, and they will be happy to begin the educational process. And if you look like me and no one comes to you, find somebody (laughs) and begin the conversation. Because all of our stories matter. Chimamanda Adichie Ngozi is one of my favorite sister girls. When I grow up, I want to be like her. And she has a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And I want to end with this quote from her. She says, stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign. But stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. So since Jesus says he wants to do a new thing and that the kingdom of heaven is here now, I wonder if you are willing to become part of the mush that is used by God to produce new wine. And if you are, would you stand to your feet with me? If you're willing to get trampled on, beat down, bruised up, so that you no longer exist and Christ exists and the leaven of the Spirit of God transforms your story and my story, let's pray together. Mighty God, the kingdom of heaven is here. And for the people of God to begin that, it has to be more than just a yearly celebration. It has to be a willingness to tell stories and listen to stories and to be uncomfortable. And Jesus, the discomfort we feel is only the process by which a new community can be formed. And I, for one, am tired. I'm tired of us not telling the truth, not telling our stories, not facing the discomfort. But I know that if we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail like we've done so many times. So as we stand together in commitment 
to allowing you to trample us and make us into mush. God, when we try to run away, please hold us. Because I believe that you are desirous of a people who fully reflect the love of God to the world. And what a story that would be if it could be said of this community in Walla Walla that we tell the truth, we say we're sorry, we forgive, and we build together. And we do it because of Jesus. God, it might actually take off and transform the world. Help us. To that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.